Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Westminster Theological Center in the UK, and I am co-host of the podcast with Aaron Heim of Denver Seminary, Matthew Bates of Quincy University in Illinois, and Drew Johnson of The King's College in New York City. Um, and for this episode, we have Professor Carol Newsom of Emory University, and she is an absolutely superb scholar and person and uh, well worth listening to. And if you've never read anything she's written, please go find something and, and read it. Uh, she's, she's very thought-provoking and brings together um, a, a range of expertise that's really unmatched in the field. Uh, she's she's uh, one of the leading scholars of the Hebrew Bible Old Testament and uh, is, a, is a wonderful supervisor, teacher, and uh, mentor to a lot of students. Um, special thanks for this uh, episode. Go to Ed Hatke for his expert production skills in taking what are often difficult sound files and, and making something uh, listenable out of them. And I want to thank uh, Tommy Molman for his expert leadership in social media and to Paul Young as well for his help in that area. Thank you to both of you. Okay, on to the episode. Hey, OnScript listeners, I'm here today with Professor Carol Newsom of Henry University and Candler School of Theology in Atlanta to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, climate change in the Bible, biblical and post-biblical concepts of the self, and a bunch of other cool stuff that Carol has worked on in the course of her illustrious career. Carol, thank you for your time and welcome to OnScript. Thank you for inviting me. Carol is Charles Howard Candler, Professor of Old Testament at Candler School of Theology, which is at Emory University in Atlanta. I did my Emory, uh, my PhD at Emory, by the way, and had the privilege of taking courses with Carol, and I highly recommend them. In addition to authoring numerous books on Job, Daniel, and Identity at Qumran, Carol is the co-editor of the Women's Bible Commentary, which is now in its fourth edition, I believe. And she produced a critical edition of the Songs of the Sabbath Sacrifice, which is one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And she was translator of 1Q Hodayot for one of the Dead Sea Scrolls critical editions. She also has three honorary doctorates and is a fellow at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And I could go on. First of all, Carol, how did you manage to resist the pull to stay in one scholarly lane throughout your career? Oh, do you mean in terms of my research? <laughs> yeah, you've done so many, you've yeah. worked in so many fields. I've, I've always said that I'm just easily bored. And so uh, at a certain point, I keep thinking, oh, something else would be fun now. Um, but I have had uh, two or three interests that I've thought would be fun to pursue. And so I've just decided from time to time to do that. Yeah, so, uh, you know, early on in your career, you you began sort of studying the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what was it that first piqued your interest in the study of the scrolls? 
Well, it's funny. I actually went to graduate school because I was interested in the connection of Assyriology in the Bible. And so it was the very earliest material that I was interested in. And um, just by happenstance, um, took a course sort of to fulfill a distribution requirement on um, Second Temple Judaism. And uh, at the time, there was um, very little um, research going on with uh, a lot of the pseudepigraphical books, you know, the non-canonical materials. And I thought, oh, wow, this stuff is just so cool, and yet nobody's working on it. So gradually, I found my interest just sort of drifting later and later uh, until I ended up in uh, really that the, the, uh, the, the Second Temple period and uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we had, there were two professors on the faculty who had been members of the original team of six editors of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so, um, you know, it just created a certain opportunity. So who did, who did you take that class with that piqued your interest? Uh, that was with John Strugnell, who eventually became my dissertation director. Um, so it, it was, uh, it just opened my eyes to things that I hadn't seen before. And you said that looking at this non-canonical Dead Sea Scrolls material was so cool. What was it that attracted you to it? Well, initially, what I stumbled onto was the um, uh, the Book of Enoch, um, which, of course, retells in the first part of the Book of Enoch, it retells parts of Genesis, especially uh, uh, Genesis uh, 6, the uh, lead up to the uh, flood story. And I had never encountered this before. And so here were, uh, you know, an, an elaborated story about the angels uh, mating with human women and the birth of the giants. And uh, I just thought, oh, my, whoever knew that this stuff existed out there? And so I started uh, um, getting interested in that. And uh, then that led on to, of course, fragments were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so once again, it was sort of, ooh, there's cool stuff here, and uh, not many people know about it. Yeah, and, and I think it's easy for for people to think that, you know, once the scrolls were discovered in 48 to 49 in, in the early 50s, that they had a, a kind of immediate impact in the field. And really, it, it, it was, wasn't until much later when these were kind of fully digested and, and understood. So you were would you say you were kind of working at the beginning of that digestion process by biblical scholars? Yeah, I, I ended up being in the right place at the right time. You know, there was a big controversy about the slow pace of publishing the scrolls. And um, I think it's a little more complicated than people realize. Part of the problem was that, um, as so many things, uh, the original team of six was supposed to just stay in place in Jerusalem until they got all their work done, but money ran out. And so they had to go take teaching jobs. And then um, after the big pieces were published, the little fragments were uh, immense, posed immense difficulties. And um, basically, the team was too small, but they didn't have a mechanism in place for recruiting new scholars. And so for better or for worse, um, some of the team members started looking to their own graduate students, and I was uh, the first graduate student that John Strugnell asked to take on the publication of some of the scrolls. And um, so I was really, uh, yeah, like I say, 
uh, fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time. Now, who's the other of the six that was at Harvard at that time? Uh, that was Frank Cross, uh, and he worked primarily on the biblical manuscripts, and Strugnell worked mostly on the non-biblical manuscripts. Um, I, I have a different question um, about your your early work at Harvard, and, and I'm curious what it was like doing research and scholarship in a male-dominated field. <laughs> Yeah, it it really, uh, it was. Now, I I was very fortunate in that uh, uh, people were just beginning to wake up to the notion that, oh, my goodness, we really ought to have women in the program and uh, uh, let's be on the lookout for some likely people. So uh, I usually had mentors and champions who uh, encouraged me. not only Cross and Strugnell, but also Paul Hansen. In fact, Paul Hansen uh, was very helpful in my getting my first job. So uh, I was I was um, uh, really fortunate in that instead of having roadblocks, I generally had people who were um, helping me. But it was a little odd in that um, uh, you know it was just customary. I walk into a class and I'd be you know, the only woman or one of two women. And so uh, just a little, yeah, a little different. Yeah, it's quite different than my experience at Emory in the graduate program. So after you produced a critical edition of Songs of the Sabbath Sacrifice, how did you go about discerning your next research area? Yeah, there was some uh, work that I had, I had, I really wanted to follow up a little bit with some of this, the scroll work. Uh, and, uh, but uh, honestly, um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. And I think uh, in those days, uh, the pace of uh, expectations was a little slower. And so I was able to take a little time and look around. But primarily what happened was that um, once I started teaching, uh, I was assigned to teach things that I'd never had any interest in before, like the wisdom literature. And so in teaching the course, I kept thinking, Whoa, wow, the book of Job is really interesting. And so as I finished up some of the work on the scrolls, um, I began to think, oh, it'd be wonderful if I could do some focused work on Job. And when I was invited to do uh, to contribute to a commentary series, uh, I said, only if I get to do the book of Job. So that was, uh, again, another fortuitous opportunity to just pursue an interest that was emerging out of my teaching. And I think a lot, for a lot of people, you think you know what you want to do, but when you start teaching material, you discover interests you didn't even know you had. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've definitely found that to be the case. And so as you, so that was for the New Interpreter's Bible commentary, is that right? Is that the right. one? That was, uh-huh. Okay, that's right. And so you you produced that commentary and then... You also went on to write another book on, or a, a monograph on Job, and I'm curious how, how how your understanding of Job shifted from the commentary to your your book Job and the Contest of Moral Imaginations. Yeah, well, th- this also involves the story of a of a I, I should call it a failed book, although eventually I, I did produce it after 15 years. Uh, following up on the Dead Sea Scrolls work, I was actually trying to do a theoretical piece on using 
uh, rhetoric and certain postmodern understandings of how language works to talk about sectarian discourse. And so I started reading the work of Mikhail Bakhtin. Well, my project on the Dead Sea Scrolls, just it got too confusing. And so I dropped it for a while. But all of a sudden I realized, oh my goodness, Bakhtin's theory of how language is really about dialogue, not just explicit, but even implicitly is always about dialogue. And I thought, that's what I need to work on the book of Job, because this is a book that is fundamentally about dialogues, both successful and failed dialogues. So, um, so, so actually the research I was doing for the scrolls opened up the key to working on Job. And when in, you can't put a bunch of theory in a commentary that's designed for uh, a general public, but the, the basic insights were in the commentary. But then I realized, huh, my scholarly friends are not going to catch what the, the theoretical bases are that I'm actually working from unless I write that material up in a different form. So doing the monograph was kind of uh, um, the sort of the unfinished business of making explicit what was implicit in the commentary. And I did finally go back and finish that Qumran book. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that's interesting because I remember one time I hadn't thought about this till now. Uh, you were on a review panel. It was, a, it was one of those commentary review panels that happened at SBL. And I remember you ta talking about the fact that often scholars will bury what is what should be a monograph within a commentary and they'll publish a commentary when they should have published a monograph. So that's probably coming out of your own experience, isn't it? In part, yes. I mean, um, the, they were for t in my case they were for two different audiences and so um, I did try to keep those tasks separate but yeah I think that we oftentimes uh, I think biblical scholarship we invest too much time and energy in commentary writing because in order to write a good commentary for an audience you have to include so much of material that is not new to scholarship, but it may be new to the person who's reading the commentary. So you have to repeat a lot that's known. Monographs are and articles are really the venue for exploring new territory. And I think that the field is better off if we do more of that, um, uh, more of that exploratory writing, we're kind of duplicating each other too much right now, I think, in writing commentary. Mm. So did, did you feel that tension when you worked on your recent Daniel commentary? I did. I did. I kept thinking, I'm not sure the world needs another one of these. And so it was difficult to think, okay, if, since I'd already agreed to do this, uh, how do we make this something that serves its audience but breaks a little new ground? And actually, the, the way I did that was by enlisting a bright young scholar, Brennan Breed, who's interested in the reception history of biblical materials. And so he wrote these brilliant essays on what happens to the interpretation of Daniel in later history. And so I look back and I think, okay, I did a competent job on laying out issues in Daniel. But what I think is the real interesting contribution there is the fact that we integrate those reception history essays. Uh, one of the themes that 
uh, emerges perhaps most clearly in your teaching, uh, although in your writing as well, is a consistent interest in environmental care. And you even teach a course, I believe, called The Bible and Care for the Earth at Candler. Is that right? Yes, that's right. What resources do you think the Bible offers for confronting or thinking about the contemporary ecological crisis? Mm-hmm. Um, the Bible, I think, does offer resources. It has sometimes been part of the problem and sometimes, I think, figures as part of the solution. Um, the uh, There has been, I think, a persistent uh, misuse of some of the Bible, the notion of, of course, what it means for human beings to have dominion uh, over the earth. And and those issues have been, I think, discussed thoroughly. And um, it certainly does not mean that people have the right to simply exploit the earth as a resource. Instead, whatever dominion means it has to be looked at in terms of the the way in which the Bible models what good kingship means, and that means protecting the whole. But um, some of the less obvious um, passages, I think, are uh, are useful in terms of the um, um, again the the wisdom literature. I think, even though it almost never talks explicitly about ecological issues. If you look at the thought structure of wisdom literature, it's very much like ecological thinking. That is, actions have consequences. Uh, uh, things are part of a, of, a, of a system so that an effect, uh, something done here will have uh, an effect over there. A sense of balance, harmony, an underlying logic which if you cooperate with it, creates flourishing, and which if you try to act greedily or selfishly against it, it creates disasters. So most people don't bring the book of Proverbs into thinking about um, environmental issues, but if you look at it, the sense of ancient wisdom really does have a very ecological structure to it. Yeah, and and you applied that same kind of wisdom thinking to Genesis 2 and 3, which are also infused with wisdom themes. And, and I thought you raised a good point in a, in a paper that you, you gave called Hope in a Time of Climate Change, uh, a conversation between Bible and the science. And, and you say that in, in light of the current ecological crisis, one of the questions that poses itself is how could we have been so foolish? It's, it's, not, it's not just the, the kind of sin and wickedness angle on the the ecological problem but also the folly uh, of humankind and and so so how does genesis 2 and 3 also give you a vantage point on the question of human foolishness toward the planet well one of the the reason that i got interested in that was i'm i'm a bit of a, a human anthropology buff and so i love reading about the origins of the human species and um, one of the things that in you know recent work they looked at this sort of creative explosion that seems to take place. And the dates are a little uh, debated, but maybe a hundred thousand years ago, and it's usually associated with the rise of um, symbolic thinking among humans. Uh, you begin to see the first evidences of um, 
of, of markings that may represent um, symbolic representation. And so something shifts in the human cognitive capacity. Maybe it's associated with the origins of language. It's very difficult um, to tell and, and things are still uh, exploratory. But all of a sudden, boom, you seem to get human migration across the, uh, the globe and the pace of technological change starts uh, increasing exponentially. So something happens in our species which had been much more stable for hundreds of thousands of years before and then all of a sudden, boom. And so <laughs> I was looking back at uh, Genesis 2 to 3 and I thought, you know, this is actually an evolutionary story because at the beginning of Genesis uh, 2, when God creates the, the earth creature, the Adam, um, and then decides to make a companion for it, God simply makes other animals. That is, there is no differentiation. By the end of the story, you're going to have three species. You're going to have divine beings, you're going to have animals, and you're going to have humans. So, so the ancients were puzzling over this same, how do humans emerge? And is it accidental or uh, fortuitous that humans emerge? And what more than that, in uh, the Genesis story, of course, our becoming, quote, like gods, uh, has to do with this difference in cognitive capacity that separates us from the other animals. And Genesis says, hmm, this had some good consequences and some not so good consequences. And I thought, wow, that strikes me as very similar to what uh, anthropologists uh, describe uh, when they're talking about this, this rapid change of humans, which not only has incredible, exciting changes associated with it, but you also start to track um, environmental degradation that follows um, the path. Yeah, I think you you put it rather well in the in the paper where you you, talk, you were talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you said um, about God likeness. Why didn't God want us to have this capacity? Well, actually, the stories rather ambivalent about that. The tree was off limits, but it was right there within reach. And narratives of this type that begin with a prohibition have a plot structure that requires that the prohibition be breached. Pandora is going to look in that box. Adam and Eve are going to eat from the tree, but the prohibition has a serious function in the story. The divine capacity was marked as off limits to us because we are not, in fact, gods. We are not equipped to handle this capacity wisely. We are this anomalous creature. We are both splendid and very, very dangerous. And and I think the the rest of the story from Genesis 3 to 6 shows this unfolding in terms of violence, but also technological developments that accompany the 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 growth of humankind as they spread throughout the world and that there's a, a kind of moral ambivalence about the the technologies that humans develop. Yes, and I, I think that there is a an awareness of that in these narratives. Um, um, you you do see the the um, well, especially in Genesis, uh, 
it will in the sequence. Of course, in Genesis 4, we have uh, uh, the murder. Uh, Genesis 5 does give us uh, the accounts of a number of new technological developments, metalworking, music, um, uh, herding, etc., uh, even the development of, of religion. Um, and so I, I think that the ancients, uh, well, we know that in uh, Greece, similarly, um, as in Israel, there was a real uh, reflection on the fact that uh, humans create extraordinary things, um, but also um, are involved in very distressing patterns of, of violence. Uh, and so um, this meditation on both the glories and the horrors of what it means to be human is, I think, um, just about as ancient as, as, uh, as the species is. So we've been yeah. self-aware. Which sounds like the yeah. Which sounds like the the kind of thinking that you get, you get in Kohelet as well, where there's this idea that you know sometimes we, you know, humans can make extraordinary things. They can develop planes, but sometimes those planes drop bombs on us. Yes. And, and there's a, a kind of concern about that. Um, so I, I want to go back just for a moment, real quick, to Genesis one because. Uh, as you as you mentioned, Genesis one often gets misused in this discussion. Um, it, it is seen as a part of the problem in human exploitation of the earth. Uh, but is there is there a place for the the notion of dominion and rule in an environmental sense? Yes, I think there is. Um, the um, uh, you know. Uh, a, a movement in deep ecology tends to see human beings as simply the problem, um, it, which I, I certainly can understand how um, the how one comes to that conclusion. Nevertheless, um, humans, for better or worse, are here, and um, if whatever going forward. Uh, is going to be done to ensure a balance uh, and to ensure that there are places that um, allow for um, the healthy uh, ecosystems. It's going to require human intentional um, intentional actions and, and action by action. I sometimes mean also keeping hands off that is allowing wild places to be wild. But it, um, because humans now have so much extraordinary power, then it's simply a fact that humans do have dominion. And the question is how to make that wise dominion. Yeah, and, and I think some of, even the, the violent imagery of subduing um, comes into play when you have a problem like kudzu taking over <laughs> the South. Uh, yes. where you needs you, you need some humans to go and with some goats as they uh they use sometimes but to yes. go in there and yank yank that stuff out yeah and, and i think there's there's a and i i doubt that's what genesis one had in mind but as we kind of reread those texts in light of the ecological crisis i think there is a place for that even the stronger sense of subjugation uh when used in conjunction with an overarching environmental care. Right. And, and of course, to do anything wisely and well uh, requires a sense of um, a sense of what goodness looks like. 
um, and a sense of what flourishing looks like, which is, you know, why I keep coming back to that sense that the uh, the wisdom literature itself, particularly in uh, the book of Proverbs, has that sense that uh, you can't talk about the good in isolation from relationships. Everything is in relationship to everything else. And so any vision of the good is going to be that deep wisdom which understands the interconnectedness of all. And that's a fundamental uh, ecological principle. Hmm. Okay, we're going to change course now. And to affect this uh, transition, uh, we're going to do a speed round where I ask a question and, and you have uh, 15 seconds to develop your answer. Okay. <laughs> All right. If you had a theme song for your life, what would it be? Oh, um, I'd have to make up a song title. Uh, I guess maybe girls just want to have fun. How about that? Intellectual fun. That, <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the greatest jazz musician of all time? Oh, Duke Ellington. Okay. When uh, when God okay here's a, a question about Job. When God said that Job had spoken rightly about him, was he, was he referring back uh, to his previous statement that he had just made, or to the entirety of Job's speeches? Actually, I think it's neither one. I think it's like a bad cut in a movie, and you think, "What? What's that referring to?" <laughs> it's a bad cut. Yeah. All right. Well, I like that one. All right. Do you have a, a favorite uh, palindrome? Uh, Abel, I was ere I saw Elba, a man, a plan, a canal, Panama. Aren't those palindromes or do I get that confused? Oh, wow. That, that, well, hey, I, I can't do palindromes quick, quickly enough in my head, but I'm going to take that. That if was it's impressive. The same before, you know, okay. backwards and backwards, both of those will work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, excellent. Uh, when's the last time you rode a carousel? Uh, I was probably in my early 20s. I went to a state fair in western Massachusetts and had a ball. <laughs> All right, you're coming up on retirement. So what hobbies do you hope to pick up or develop? Oh, I've taken up weaving. And I have taken up uh, the uh, lamp work glass beads, which involves fire, molten glass, and um, a lot of fun. Oh, wow. I feel like we need more than 15 seconds on this. So, so the <laughs> weaving as in like a, we not a weaving loom, not basket or not basket weaving? Right. So. Yes. I have, a, I have a floor loom. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. And are you using um, uh, Iron Age uh, loom weights? No, although I really have gotten interested now. There's a wonderful book called uh, Women's Work, The First 20,000 Years, and it's a history of weaving. So it tells some of those ancient okay. techniques. Oh, I, I had a chance to dig at Tel Berna uh, in the Shvela, and I, I dug up a loom weight. All I was right. pretty excited about it. <laughs> All right. Um, and, and then the glass bead, what does that mean? Uh, you take glass rods and uh, melt them and uh, shape them around steel rods coated with clay and then uh, decorate them with uh, different colors. 
So anytime you've got molten glass and high temperatures and pretty colors, you know, uh, it's exciting. Uh, I burned my finger last week. So. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I assume you wear eye, uh, eye protection? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you have to be careful about your eyes and about your lungs because uh, there are fumes that come from this. And and uh, you just do that in your microwave, I'm sure, right? Uh, no, right now I have to go to a studio, but uh, I have plans for putting in a home studio if I really get serious about it. But I highly oh, recommend be amazing. it. Amazing. Okay. All right. Uh, where do you where do you hope to uh, travel? Well, uh, as soon as uh, my last classes are out, we're going to be heading off to New Zealand, which is uh, one of my favorite places in the whole world. All right. Let's say that after. Once you've retired, you had the ambition to start a company. What company would it be? Uh, it would be it would be a handicrafts company. I really I really like uh, the revival of craft working, and uh, I think that would be something to encourage. Yeah, I have to say, I recently, um, actually, just this week. I had five kilograms of willow with these de- delivered to my house because I picked up basket weaving. Oh, right. <laughs> so, so I, um, Abby, my 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 wife, uh, bought some willow at a a craft fair, brought it home. It sat there for like six months, and then we just made baskets, and it was so much fun. So, we're going for it. All right, I'll represent um, you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, cats or dogs? Oh, uh, dogs. Okay. Uh, of what of what achievement are you most proud? Uh, well, you know, to be serious, uh, the opportunity to bring back the dead uh, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls to make it available to people um, that's probably the thing that has made me um, happiest in terms of contributions. Excellent. All right, in one sentence, can you sell me on an Atlanta summer? <laughs> Even if it's hot and and dry, the eggplant grows beautifully. <laughs> What's the most provocative or challenging book that you've read recently? Mm, 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 mm. That is difficult. Oh, uh, I read the uh, Ron Chernow's biography of Ulysses Grant. And since I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, we didn't hear much good about Ulysses Grant. He's a fascinating guy. <laughs> okay. Now, what's something surprising that the Old Testament has to say about women? Um, uh, oh, uh, women can be as violent as men. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, Yael was uh, one of my, my uh, heroines when I was a small child because uh, I, I, was, I was quite attracted to uh, seeing women act violently. <laughs> and uh, so did you have like a, a, a picture of Yael um, in action uh, on your wall? Um, no, but I do remember one from the Bible study, uh, Bible storybook. So um, she was, uh, she and, and Deborah made quite a pair. Yeah. Uh, what's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? <laughs> um, that we can reverse engineer uh, how the Bible was written. That is to say, I think redaction theories get far too complicated. We know it happened, but I don't think you can reverse engineer it very often, very in very much detail. 
Okay, well, I'll let you take that up with the Germans. Um, all right, I'd like to I'd, I'd like to shift gears uh, to briefly here at the end to talk about your some of your current work on the genealogy of the self and moral anthropology in ancient Israel. And those two ideas might be a head-scratcher for some of our listeners. So I'm wondering if you could explain what genealogy of the self means and how you're thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that um, people have realized for some time is that our sense of self, um, which we sort of take for granted, um, actually is culturally and historically specific. That is the way, uh, one of the things that we realize, and this is fairly easy to see, is that Westerners do tend to have a slightly different sense of the self than, say, people from China or Japan. Now, that contrast can be overly drawn, but uh, Westerners, we tend, at least if people asked us what's the self, we tend to describe it in rather individualistic terms. And if you ask people from um, Oriental cultures, they are much more likely to describe it in interdependent or sort of social terms. So there are these differences. And people have also realized that there's a history to development of understandings of the self. Um, um, Taylor wrote this um, uh, extraordinary book, Sources of the Self, trying to give a genealogy of the, the modern Western self. So I, I began to get interested in um, it, how we think about, or how the ancient Israelites think about the self, and it struck me that there are indications of some significant changes that happen between the period of the, the First Kingdom and then the period of Second Temple Judaism. And I got interested in seeing if I could tease out some of those. And and, and your your primary sources for thinking about that, are, is it, are you looking at the entire Hebrew Bible and Second Temple literature to kind of look at, at, at broad trends, or are you working in specific texts? Well, fortunately, a good deal of work has been done on the, um, the sort of the basic ancient, um, what we think of biblical, uh, sense. Um, and uh, one of the things that people noticed is that, um, uh, that it, there doesn't seem to be a lot of um, introspection. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of sense of inner conflict, a divided self. Uh, the sort of things that, you know, if you were going to really contrast it, you would say, oh yeah, uh, during the Romantic period in uh, 19th century uh, Europe or whatever, you have these agonized, tortured, internally divided self. But even if you look at the uh, Puritans, the way they did uh, self-examination and, and uh, sort of the, uh, they would um, name their faults, they would identify their struggling wills and so on and so forth. Well, all of a sudden I thought, huh, then how do you go from one to the other? And even already in Paul, you know, you do have some indications in Paul that there is a sense of a divided self. So I thought, hmm, I wonder if I can close in on finding some of the places where you start to see this uh, idea develop. And, and I think you can find these. And, you know, I in graduate school, I, I read the the 
famous article by Christer Stendhal called The Apostle Paul and the Introspective Conscience of the West. And um, I can't remember the details of that too well, but um, I, I think he, he sort of says that we often read back into Paul this idea of a plagued conscience and that that actually doesn't develop until much later. And this is one of the this is one of the the real debates, you know exactly. But we know that by the time you get to someone like Augustine, um, you you've got that. But are we are we retrojecting Luther? Are we retrojecting Augustine into Paul? And there was, I think, I mean, Stendhal's article uh, has some really good insights. In some respects, though, the aftermath of that article has gone too far in the other direction, and you get this sort of weirdly exotic. Um, notion that, you know, that, um, that they had no uh, ability to, um, for self-examination, self-consideration. And more recent scholarship, I'd say over the past 10 years, has really started shifting now in another direction. Um, most interesting um, couple of, uh, well, one by Susan Eastman just came out this year called Paul and the Person reframing Paul's anthropology. And she goes in to look at, you know, what are the models of, of personhood uh, in, uh, in Paul? And she puts them some, some conversations uh, with contemporary uh, experimental psychology, modern neuroscience, and so on and so forth. So I think we're starting to find um, a new discourse about the self in antiquity that's uh, more nuanced than we've had and which perhaps uh, finds that middle way between anachronistic views and uh, sort of weirdly exotic views of the self. Hope so anyway. Right. Yeah. And by weirdly exotic, you're saying that uh, we, we, we describe uh, Paul and his contemporaries as so different that they had no in notion of interiority or uh, a, a, a self that they could examine, that w there's an utter disjunction. Yeah, and, and uh, so I think that's carrying cultural difference too far uh, because basically to be successful human beings, uh, we all have to have certain capacities for recognizing internal conflicts of, of uh, you know, conflicting desires or, or motives. Uh, we all we have to have certain basic equipment. Now, the, the difference is sometimes culture latches onto those and says, ooh, and, and develops those. That's where I think you see um, uh, real, real differences between cultures and over time is that certain things become thematically interesting to a culture. And so a culture may decide to turn and find that sense of inner conflict productive, interesting, and develop it. And, and you do start to see that in Second Temple Judaism, although the, the nature of that cultural construct of the self is going to be quite different from what you're seeing over in the developing philosophical discourses in Greece. That's something, you know, so, so eat, they may be both, we might describe them both generally as developing this introspective potential, but they're going to be quite culturally different too. Yeah. And so as it, 
as it's becoming a, a more of a cultural preoccupation, uh, what's what's the nature of that internal struggle as it takes shape in the Qumran literature that might differ from the Old Testament and also differ from how moderns tend to think about the internal struggles mm-hmm. that we might have? Well, one of the things that I notice is, uh, and, and I again, I don't want to oversimplify because there's a lot of different developments that are going on in Persian period Judaism. But the the one little angle that I've been following here is um, it really, I think, related to how to deal with the trauma of the fall of Jerusalem and Judah in 587. Um, because this had been set up in uh, Deuteronomistic language and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, etc. It's basically a moral fault on the base on the part of the people. They knew what they should do. They failed to do what they should do. And so, in the aftermath, if you're looking back and you're thinking, uh, "Why did we fail?" and even more so, looking forward, is it possible not to fail in the future? Um, then, uh, people, uh, there is a a kind of uh, where does the problem come from and what's the solution? And you see in Ezekiel already, Ezekiel has a very negative view of the people. And basically, you have to take away that heart of stone. You've got to put in the heart of flesh. And also, God puts God's spirit into the people. And so you will be able to follow my laws. So the, the sense of something fundamentally defective in the human mind or heart is, uh, that's a fairly new idea. And uh, then you begin to see it sort of creeping into uh, individual uh, psalmic poetry. Psalm 51, create in me a new heart, O God, drawing on Ezekiel. So here's a person who, at prayer, sort of considering himself, not just saying, save me, O Lord, but transform me, O Lord, because there's something radically defective about me. And so that's a moment in which you see the speaking voice turns its attention on itself. I'm not simply a whole being saying, save me. I'm looking into myself. Save me from myself. That's different. And then you begin to see, how does it show up in Qumran? Oh, they have this notion of two spirits struggling within the the body of a person uh, in the two spirits teaching. Or you see in the the Hodeo, the Thanksgiving Psalms, um, this concern that a spirit of perversion rules over me. Well, how do you know that a spirit of perversion (laughs) rules over you? (laughs) And in some sense, uh, then again, they're asking for transformation of the self because they're so disturbed by a sense of something radically wrong within oneself. Those are new things. Yeah, and and is that uh, so? That is even different from what you see in the Cain and Abel story, where prior to killing his brother, Cain is warned that there's uh, there's a you know sin is lying or uh, crouching at the door, and he's got to master it. So so how would it how would it be different from that kind of internal struggle? 
Um, is is it the fundamental nature of it, or well, actually, or is, are there other differences? I do think that those, uh, like the that the Genesis narratives, are probably also an early stage of this development. They are in, now there. You still have that sin is crouching. It seems to be an externalized force. Um, if you look at how notions of the demonic start to change at this same period. Um, in you know, in most of ancient world, what do demons do? Their their job portfolio involves causing illness and death. Demons are not interested in your moral nature. Uh, that's not their job. But you start to see the demonic as a moral threat at exactly the same period of time. Uh, possibly uh, in some of the Enochic materials, but very clearly in the Book of Jubilees, they lead you astray. That's not what Mesopotamian demons do. So we're getting this same sense that alienation can either be seen as internal, it's my heart that's the problem, or external, it's this demon that wants to influence my moral will. And those are just two sort of complementary ways of describing the same anxiety. Hmm. And and the other interesting point you made uh, in one of your articles was that there, there's also this idea that the cosmic conflict that was previously external uh, between good and evil was now taking place within oneself. Yes, yes. And you see that very clearly in the Qumran Two Spirits Treatise, where um, what is a... a a kind of dualistic um, conflict between two principles, light and darkness, or what you could see in terms of angelic figures, the prince of uh, light and the angel of darkness, um, you can also then see as being internal, the spirit of um, light or darkness that operates at the level of human psychology. So all of this is sort of homologous throughout cosmic and personal, which one of the things that results from that is that then what we think of as moral struggles take on this great seriousness because in resisting that sense of evil, I'm somehow resisting something that has um, cosmic significance as well. So, Carol, is the development of the moral self your next major monograph project, or what else do you have on the horizon? Yeah, no, I am. That is, oh, is what I'm working on right now, and um, hope to finish that up in a year or so. Um, and uh, um, then uh, I also am working on a commentary on the Hodayot, the uh, Thanksgiving songs from Qumran. And so that fits in quite nicely since uh, those are important texts for the question of the self. And all this between weaving and glass bead uh, artwork, right? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, uh, trying trying to get the balance right between work and play. Yeah, but, uh... yeah that's good. Well, well Carol, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with OnScript. And on behalf uh, of your listeners, but also and especially your current and former students, I want to say how much we appreciate you. Oh, well, thank you. And it's just been a real pleasure. You're uh, a wonderful interviewer and have made this a much less intimidating process than I was afraid it might be. (laughs) Oh, thank you. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. 
Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.